Thanks, Paul, for reading scripture for us and for giving those announcements. Um, Good morning again uh, and welcome. My name's Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. And like Paul said, we're just so delighted that you've uh, chosen to be with us this morning and hope you feel welcome uh, here at Christ Community. Um, This summer, we're in the middle of of a series, and we're, but it's been asking this question does it really matter? Um, Does it really matter what uh, kind of the core historic Christian beliefs um, are? Do they make any difference to our lives? And so we've looked at, at, does it really matter what we believe about God? Does it really matter what we believe about the Bible? And uh, this week, we're going to be asking the question, does it really matter what we believe about the cross? Um, And before we we look closer at this text that that Paul read for us, I just want to pause um, and and ask for God's help in understanding it, and then uh, we'll look at it together. So, Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you uh, have given us your word and that you have placed at the center um, of your word the person and work of Jesus Christ, that, that every part, every piece of the Bible ultimately is pointing uh, to Jesus and his work on the cross and his resurrection. So I pray this morning as we look into this passage um, that you would give us a clear sense um, of the work that you've done and the work that you're doing uh, even now in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, earlier this year, uh, when Rachel and I were on vacation, uh, one of the books that I read was Jim Gaffigan, the comedian Jim Gaffigan. I read his book, Dad is Fat, and, uh, and I love Jim Gaffigan, and, and his writing is really funny. And I think as a comedian, not only is he hilarious, which he, he definitely is, but I also think Jim really sort of gets who we are as people. I think he has some real insight into who we are as human beings. And, and there's a, a chapter in the book called I Confess. And I think in that chapter, he puts his finger on one of our biggest problems as human beings, and that's the problem of guilt. And I just want to read you a little bit of this, because I think he just captures in in a funny way what so many of us experience. He says, I wasn't ready for the guilt of being a parent. He says, I was raised Catholic, so guilt was a familiar friend. Guilt is as much a part of being Catholic, he says, as rooting for Notre Dame. He said, I grew up with a God is watching you, so you better not make him mad mentality. He says, I felt guilty for feeling good, for feeling bad, and for feeling nothing. Attending confession was supposed to alleviate some of the guilt, but I always ended up feeling guilty for not telling the priest everything I felt guilty about, so I stopped going to confession. Then I felt guilty about stopping going to confession. So he says, that's a lot of guilt. But just when I thought nothing could top Catholic guilt, I became acquainted with parental guilt, which totally puts Catholic guilt to shame. Sorry, Catholic guilt. Now you know how I feel. And this is what he says. He says, no matter how hard you try to be a good parent, you always know deep down you could do more. He says, I feel guilty when I travel on the road to do shows. I feel guilty when I'm in town and don't spend every single moment with my children. I feel guilty when I am spending time with them and not doing something constructive toward their intellectual development. He says, I feel guilty when I feed them unhealthy food they don't like. I feel guilty when I feed them healthy food they, they, they don't like. Excuse me. Unhealthy food they don't like healthy food that they don't like. I feel guilty when I drop them off at school. I feel guilty when I pick them up at school. I feel guilty from writing this book instead of spending time with them. And then he says, great, now I probably made you feel a little guilty for reading this book. <laughs> and he says, now I feel guilty about that too. Sorry. And he says, probably what I feel most guilty about is how many times I've used guilt in this essay. Um, and, but you don't, and you don't have to be Catholic or, or a parent to, to resonate with what Gaffigan is saying in this, in this chapter. I mean, we all feel it, don't we? We feel this guilt. It just plagues us. 
Um, I, I think everybody, deep down, we believe in guilt. I mean, even if at the end of the day you say, yeah, I, don't, I don't really believe in, in Jesus or I don't believe in God or judgment or, or the afterlife, it's hard to not believe in guilt because we feel it. Um, this, this week I read a fascinating article in, in, on the website Science 2.0, and I love the title of the article. This high, the title was, Scientists Discover That Atheists May Not Exist, and that's not a joke. Um, that was the, the title of the article, and the article highlights a number of scientific studies that show, quote, that even people who claim to be committed atheists tacitly hold religious beliefs such as the existence of an immortal soul. And, and one of the places the article points out that we, we see this is in stories, where guilt and justice are givens. The author of the article writes, in most all fictional worlds, God exists, whether the stories are written by people of religious, atheist, or indeterminate beliefs. He says it's not that the deity appears directly in tales, it's just that the fundamental basis of stories appears to be a link between the moral decisions made by the protagonist and the same character's ultimate destinies. He says the payback is always appropriate to the choices made. An unnamed, unidentified mechanism ensures that this is so. It is a fundamental element of stories, perhaps the fundamental element of all narratives. He says in children's stories, this can be very simple. The good guy wins and the bad guy loses. In narratives for older readers, the ending is more complex with some loose ends left dangling and others ambiguous. Yet the ultimate appropriateness of the ending is rarely in doubt. He says if the tale of Harry Potter ended with him being tortured to death and the Dursley family dancing on his grave, the audience would be horrified, of course, but also puzzled. That's not what happens in stories. Again, we, we don't just see it in stories or, or out there somewhere. We, we feel it in here. This is Gaffigan's whole point. We feel the guilt. We, we all wrestle with what journal, journalist uh, Jules Shulovitz, uh, writing in the New York Times, called the eternal murmur of inner self-reproach. The eternal murmur of inner self-reproach. <laughs> what does that murmur sound like? Well, here's what it sounds like in my mind. It sounds like, man, Bill, if you were a better pastor, you would pray more. Oh man, you should have taken that, that glass and thrown it in the ripple glass recycling thing rather than just throwing it in the trash. But it's so much work to take it to the ripple glass thing. Man, I still haven't texted my friend back from last week. Gosh, I'm a terrible friend. Oh, and I need to get that, that check engine light on the Corolla looked at. How long has that thing been on? Was that two years? Gosh. It's like, hashtag fail, hashtag loser. And then it's like, now I'm thinking like, oh gosh, did I just use hashtag in a sermon? Now I'm going to feel like reproach about that. And you can try and quiet that rumor, that murmur with busyness. You, you can try to accept yourself with your flaws and just say, I'm okay. You can even pay someone $100 an hour to say, you know, you're, you're okay. But, but you know I know, we, we know deep down that we're not okay. Again, you, you can try to, to dull it with, with food or drink or TV or sports or sex, drugs, it, but it never disappears. Instead, you end up just feeling more guilt for self-medicating, which in turn just requires more self-medication. 
In fact, if you, if you talk to people who are counselors, psychologists, they'll say one of the primary reasons underlying most addictive behavior is guilt and shame. Addiction is an attempt to cover, to forget, to escape the pain of guilt. But it never disappears. See, there's really only one solution. There's only one solution to our guilt that that doesn't end up enslaving us in the process of alleviating it. Only one that sets us free, that unleashes us to be who we're actually made to be. And that solution is found on the cross. For in Jesus, there is no one left to condemn you. In Jesus, there is no one left, nothing left to condemn you. But the only way that could possibly be true of you and me is if we see and embrace three things on the cross. There's three things we need to see if if the cross is going to make sense. The first thing we need to see is we need to see us on the cross um, because we stand condemned. And the second thing we need to see is God on the cross because he stands in our place. And then the third thing we need to see is life unleashed on the cross because we stand accepted. So first, first we have to see us on the cross. You need to see, see you on the cross. Look at what Paul says in, in verse 13. He says, in the first part of the verse, he says, you were dead in your trespasses. And Paul is, is writing to a church, a church in the city of Colossae. It's not all that unlike our church today. And the early Christians that Paul was writing to, they are in danger of forgetting who they were before they knew Christ and, and who they are now in Christ. And Paul starts off this passage by reminding them that apart from Christ, they and we, you and I, that we are dead. The first thing that that you need to know and believe if you're going to make any sense of the cross, if you're going to escape your guilt, is that you are dead apart from the cross. You and I are supposed to be dead We're not supposed to be sitting here today. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, come on, Bill. I I mean, I get that I've done some some bad things, but I'm not not that bad. I mean, sure, I'm not perfect, but I don't think I've committed any sort of capital offenses. But this is is where we, we sort of miss how sin works. Because oftentimes we view sin as sort of the, a violation or wrongdoing. It's kind of a violation of an abstract code somewhere, that there's some sort of, you know, universal code of justice floating out there in, in the heavenlies, and if we sin, we're breaking that. But, but it's not just that. Because sin is never just the violation of an abstract code or a set of rules. It's always the rejection and hatred of a person. It's the betrayal of a relationship. It's the attempted murder of the king of the universe. And so our debt is all too real. Our guilt is all too real. But the trouble that we have is is that in our culture, we don't trust our guilt anymore. I think there was a time when we used to trust our guilt, that if we felt guilty, we thought, no, I really have done something wrong, but, but we, we don't anymore. And, and yet, as we saw at the beginning, we all live as if Paul, and Paul says it here, as if guilt is real, that it points to something objective. There actually is a record of debt standing against us. And, and that in the midst of that, we're, we're supposed to be settling accounts, that we're supposed to be living up to something. 
but we aren't. Now again, you might say, well, Bill, I, I know, I'm here, but I don't really believe the Bible. I mean, I don't really buy this. So is there, there's not a record against piling up against me. I don't agree with the morality of this book anyway. Okay, that's fine. So let's just like close this and set it aside for a minute and, and just set that aside. Now imagine this. You uh, take your smartphone and, and you put in a little app on your smartphone. And this, this app runs in the background all the time. And all this, it's a voice recognition app. All it does is it just records whenever you say you should or you shouldn't. So all this app does, just every time you say the word I should or you should or you shouldn't do that, it just makes a list of all that. Basically, what this app is doing is it's recording your standards for the people around you. Even if we throw out this book, In the end, if you're just judged by your own standards for other people, by your own words, we still all fail miserably. We we don't live up to even what we ask other people to do. We We don't always treat other people how we expect them to treat us. So even if we set the bar way lower than anything that's set here, just just our simply our view of what other people should do, we still fail. So so our guilt is real. It isn't just a feeling. The feeling points you to a record of debt. There, there is a moral reality to the universe that, that's just as real as anything here, this, real as this, this podium or, or me standing in front of you. There's an IOU on every conscience. It says we should be on the cross because there must be a payment because it's not enough just to acknowledge that we're guilty. We, we actually have to, to do something about the guilt. We have to pay it back. The record of debt that Paul talks about here, it, it's not just for the archives, it's for the collector's office. And, and in, in ancient Rome, the, the record of debt, the, the charge would have been nailed above the executed victim on the cross. And you see, there's a reason that in the Gospels, Jesus is always depicted with his crucifixion happening between two criminals. Not, and it's not just because it's historically accurate, but it's a moral bedrock truth. That's you and me. We belong on the cross. See, if, if the cross is going to make any sense, you have to see yourself, your decisions, your life. You have to see it there. Or ultimately, nothing in this book is really going to make sense. Every one of us, apart from Christ, is a criminal that's condemned to die. And if you reject that, you can't accept Jesus. This is why the gospel, this is why the cross is so deeply offensive to us as people. Because to be a Christian is to say nothing less, to believe nothing less than that I am a sinner who deserves death. We don't like saying that. But, but it's at the core of the gospel. If you don't accept that, you, you can't accept Jesus. But, but the thing is, is this isn't just a problem for us. This is a problem for God, too. Our guilt is a problem for him because you see the entire storyline of the Bible from from beginning to end, the entire storyline of the Bible, it's predicated on a promise, a promise that God will always love his people, that that he will always restore them, that he will always forgive them. You see this over and over and over again as you read the Bible. God has made this promise to his people 
that I'll forgive you, I'll restore you, I'll bless you. But this presents a massive problem for God. Why? I mean, can't God just forgive? If God is all-powerful, why can't he just forgive? Uh, Tim Keller points out the problem this way. He says, God can say, let there be light. He can say, let there be dry land. But he can't just say, let there be forgiveness. But why not? I mean, isn't that what Jesus did in the passage we looked at last week? I mean, if if you're here, you remember we, we said, for Jesus saying to the paralyzed man, actually stand up and walk was nothing. That was easy for him. But saying your sins are forgiven cost him everything on the cross. See, God has to be just. I mean, what would you say to a, to a human judge who took someone who had murdered a family member of yours and said, oh, it's, it's okay, you, you feel bad about it, that's fine. I, it's okay, I, I forgive you, just go on. I mean, we'd be outraged, right? No, there has to be justice. There must be payment. There, there must be a reckoning. We, we all know it deep down. So how can God bring justice to the world without destroying us? This is one of the big questions of the Bible. How can God be faithful to his promise and uphold justice at the same time? This is the question that God is asking from Genesis 3 on. And we find the, the, the glorious and astonishing answer to this question in verses 13 and 14. We, we see God himself on the cross. Look at what, what Paul writes in verses, the end of verse 13 and in the first part of verse 14. He says, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So God has forgiven our sins. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us and its demands. But how has he canceled it? If he can't just say, let there be forgiveness, how has he canceled the debt? By placing himself on the cross in our place. This is this, the record of debt he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This, friends, this is the guilt-lifting, the conscience-soothing, the condemnation-removing, the life-giving, joy-infusing, freedom-bringing core of the gospel. That Jesus, God himself, is on the cross in our place. It's what theologians sometimes call the substitutionary atonement. That, that is God taking the punishment we deserve in our place. This is the heart and the glory of the gospel. And if, if we lose that, we, we lose everything. The great British preacher and theologian John Stott, he explains it this way. He says, The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at both the heart of sin and salvation. He says, For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. This is the good news. This good news of substitution is our only hope for rescue, restoration, and reconciliation. Our statement of faith puts it this way. It says, we believe that Jesus Christ as our representative and our substitute shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation, the only ground for our rescue. 
You see, God couldn't ignore the record of debt. To be a God, to be God, to be a God that is worthy of worship, to be a God that we would want to worship, he can't just ignore. He has to be just. So, so in a completely, and I, I think sometimes we forget this, but in a, because we're so familiar with it, so many of us, but this is a completely unexpected turn in the story of Scripture. God himself takes all of the debt on him. He goes on the cross in our place. No one expected that that's what the Messiah was going to do. You see, Jesus isn't just an innocent man. He's God himself, and we can't miss that. Just a few verses earlier in the chapter, in verse 9, Paul makes this unmistakably clear. Speaking of Jesus, he says, the full, for in him, Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is very God of very God. He sacrifices himself. He, he comes undone, experiencing not just death, but hell itself for you and for me. And here's the thing. You might be here this morning and say, I just don't believe this. I just don't buy it. But I'd ask you this question. Isn't there part of you that, that, that wants that to be true? That, that moves you at some level? Because all the best stories, right? All of the best stories are the ones where one person is sacrificing themselves to the many, right? Whether, whether it's the story of a soldier who, who throws himself on a grenade to, to save the life of his fellow soldiers. Or, or a few years ago, you remember the story of the, the Amish schoolgirl who offered her life for her class during the, the school shooting. I mean, or think about the, the fiction that we love, Harry Potter, The Lord of the Rings, The Hunger Games, The Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe. All of these stories turn on powerful acts of substitution, the life of the one for the many. So, so even if you don't understand it, even if you don't buy it, there's, aren't you compelled by it at some level? Why are we so compelled by it? Because it is the fundamental story of the universe. Substitution is at the heart of every story that makes our hearts sing. Why? Because there's no greater love than this. There's no greater love. The, the Christian interpretation of the cross, it begins in guilt and wrath and payments, but its motivation and its end is found in love. Now, there's two things to say here. The story of substitution on the cross is only good news if two things are true. It's only good news if two things are true. It's only good news if Jesus chooses it. So first, it's only good news if Jesus chooses it. What do I mean by that? Well, there are those who would say, they would, they would kind of would mock the idea of substitution as divine child abuse. Maybe you've heard that term leveled against Christianity. So it's only true if, in good news if Jesus chooses it. Because Jesus isn't on the cross against his will. He isn't forced to do something he doesn't want to. He is God himself orchestrating this plan of substitutionary rescue from before time. Jesus, in great love and glory, chooses the cross. So the cross is only good news if Jesus chooses it. Second, the cross is only good news if it saves us from something. It's only good news if it actually saves us from something. Jesus' death on the cross saves us from God's wrath, from, from Jesus' wrath that we justly deserve. However, again, there are some who would say that, that God doesn't have wrath. 
that, that, that Jesus' death on the cross is just a demonstration of His great love for us. But if that's true, then the cross isn't good news. I mean, imagine this. Suppose Rachel and I are walking down the, the trolley track trail here, and, and I say to her, Rachel, I, I love you so much. I, I love you so much. I would, I would die for you. In fact, let, let me show you that the next Max bus that comes flying down Warnell, I'm going to jump in front of it to show you how much I love you. Now, not only would she be horrified that I did that, I mean, even the, the suggestion of doing that is, is outrageous. It's angry. Why, why would you do that? That's not love. However, if, if we're walking and she trips and, and falls into the street and I, and I run out and grab her and throw her away and then I'm hit by the bus and I die saving her life, then that's, that's a great act of love. You see, Jesus' death is only good news as it saves us from something. If, if it doesn't rescue us from anything, it's a foolish and horrible waste. So the good news of the gospel is that we have been rescued from the very worst danger. Because the thing is, is, is we're not mere innocents who have sort of tripped and fallen into the streets, but we are rebels who deserve death. But again, hear the good news of the gospel. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, one of his other letters. He says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so we've seen us on the cross. We've seen God on the cross. But if we stop there, then we've missed the fullness of what's happening on the cross. Because we haven't understood the cross until we see life unleashed on the cross. If you're a Christian, if you've trusted Christ, then life is unleashed on the cross because there is no one left to condemn you. Your debts cannot condemn you, death cannot condemn you, and the accusers cannot condemn you. First, your debts cannot condemn you. See, every one of us comes here this morning with regrets, with feelings of guilt. I, mean, I think all of us resonated with, with Jim Gaffigan at the beginning, right? And many of us here this morning, myself included, have things that, that we've said or we've done or we've thought that we will regret until the day that we die. And I actually just want you to take a moment right now and and just think about those things. As painful, as difficult, what, what are those things? What's on your record of debt? Adultery, pornography, any variety of sexual sins, abortion, divorce, theft, abuse, gluttony, alcoholism, greed, idolatry, fear, lies, anger, manipulation, alienation, destruction, deep shame. Now listen to Colossians 2, 13 and 14 again. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
all of that stuff that you just thought of, all that stuff that was just listed, all of it is nailed to the cross. All of it. It's paid in full. Not just the really bad things, not just the ones you did before you came to faith, all of them. God paid for all sins on the cross. And not just paid, but obliterated them. Because did you see that word canceled in the text? That he canceled our debt? That, that work, it's actually really too weak. It's uninspiring. And, and the Greek word here, it's much better. Um, back when I was in, in Bible college and seminary, there was a time in, in my life where it felt like all I did was, was uh, flip through Greek and Hebrew vocabulary card, cards. This is, I felt like all I did was just spend time looking at, at these cards. And, and I don't talk about that a lot here. Um, but today I made you a Greek vocabulary card. And they're actually on, on your aisles. There's like little pockets. So if you pull this out, there should be one. We try to scatter them around the room. If, if there's not one that's nearby, just pass one to your neighbor. And, and like I said, I don't often talk about this. I, I, I always look at the original languages as part of my study. But, but, I, but I don't, we don't talk about it a lot because we have great English translations. And I want you to have con- confidence in your English Bible. But this is one Greek word that, that I want you all to know and memorize. And take this and put it someplace important where you're going to see it, where you're going to remember it. And it's the Greek word, exalepho. And actually, say that with me, exalepho. Okay, and it's to cause something to cease by obliterating any evidence, to eliminate, to do away with, to wipe out. That's the word that's translated canceled here. To completely obliterate any evidence of. That is what Jesus has done with our sins, the record of debt. It's been completely obliterated, erased. When we come to Jesus, we're not just given a clean slate. The slate is done away with. It's obliterated. It's taken away. The evidence of our rebellion has been restored. Every shameful mistake, every past failure, your your debts, your past, your present, and future are gone. This means that we can rest and rejoice in his forgiveness. Because, you see, debt inhibits our freedom. I mean, financially, we all know this, right? I mean, one of the biggest economic issues in our country right now is, is student loan debt, right? That, that fewer people are, are buying homes or, or starting businesses because they're, they're loaded down with, with college loan debt. Their, their freedom is limited. You see, you see, if we are constantly plagued by guilt and shame and fear... We will never be able to rest and rejoice. We will never live life to the fullest. But on the cross, life has been unleashed. In Christ, your debts can no longer condemn you. And not only that, but death can no longer condemn you. You see, death died with the death of Jesus. He trampled over death by death. Death is no longer the end. It has been defeated because not only did Jesus die, but he also, he rose again from the dead. If you look at, at Colossians 2.12, again, just the, the verse right before our text, it says, having been buried with him in baptism, it's talking about those who have followed Christ, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. What this passage is saying is when we put our faith, our trust, our confidence, and our hope in Jesus, what is true of him becomes true of us. That his story becomes our story. That his victory becomes our victory. Which brings us to our final point. That the accusers cannot condemn you. 
Look at verse 15. It says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The rulers and authorities that Paul is talking about here are the, the satanic, the demonic forces that condemn us. Both the words Satan and devil, what those words mean is they, they mean fundamentally accuser or slanderer, deceiver. New Testament scholar Clint Arnold, he explains it this way. He says, the cross of Christ marks the decisive feat of the demonic powers. On the cross, they were stripped of their power to accuse Christians before God. There really are spiritual forces that exist in the world that are literally hell-bent on destroying you. But Jesus put them to shame, triumphing over them because he removed their only power. The only real power that they ever had over you was this record of debt that they could use before God to say, look, this one deserves death and hell. But that's gone now and they have no more power. The final book of the Bible, Revelation, elaborates on this, this final destruction of evil that was won in this decisive victory on the cross. John writes this, the great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown with him. The accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. The primary identity of the evil one is as an accuser. And these forces work through deceptions. They lie. They tell you that your sins are not forgiven. They tell you that you are condemned, but they are wrong. You have to let God tell you who you are. So when shame and guilt threaten to overwhelm you, Declare with great joy and hope the second verse of before the throne of God. I have this memorized. It's close to my heart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Now look at your, your flashcard one more time as we close. <laughs> this is what Jesus has done with our sins. And because of that, our names can never be obliterated from the book of life. This little word is used twice in the book of Revelation, and they're both really important. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus says of those who have trusted in him that he will never ever, ever blot out. He will never expelio their name from the book of life. But it isn't just our sin that he's obliterated beyond all recognition. At the very end of Revelation, this word is used one more time. When Jesus returns and he makes all things right, this is what Revelation 21 says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with mankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And then this is what it says next. He will wipe away every tear. He will exalefo. He will obliterate, destroy any evidence of every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. And neither will there be mourning or crying or pain. For the former things have passed away. Jesus is making all things new. There is nothing left to condemn you. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, I pray um, that as we hear this message of good news, that there is nothing left to condemn us, that you would give us the faith, the courage, the wherewithal to, to latch on to that truth and never let go of it because there are thousands of voices from our families, from our friends, from our coworkers, from, from the world, from magazines, from all kinds of things that would say otherwise of us. And probably most loud is the own voice in our, set, in our own heads that tells us that, that we are condemned. May we never let, hold, let go of the hold that we have in the truth that Jesus has given us the gift of no condemnation. In Jesus' name, amen. It's in communion each week that we celebrate that truth, that good news that there is nothing left to condemn us. The meal that we eat, and this breaking of the bread, the, the drinking of the cup, the pouring out, this is the good news depicted as a meal. This is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ given to us in tangible, touchable, even edible form. So as you come to the table, as you stand in line waiting to receive this good news, remember this is Jesus declaring to you there is no longer any condemnation for the forgiveness of sins has been wrought. If you're new, let me explain how we do this here at Christ Community. Um, you don't have to be a member here to take communion with us. If, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you look to the cross and say, that is my only hope for rescue, reconciliation, restoration, then you are welcome at the table. Um, if that's not where you're at yet, if you're saying, I'm just here checking this out, and, and, and I'm not sure if I, if I even buy any of this yet, um, that's okay. And we're so glad that you're here. And I just encourage you to use this time to just reflect on, on the this truth that we've been talking about of the fact that there is no condemnation in Christ. Um, you, don't, you don't have to come. Um, if, if you uh, are here and you are going to come, gather in groups of four or five around the table. There's four communion stations around the room. So there's two in the back and there's two in the front. Um, just take the bread, dip it in the cup, and then we'll partake together. Uh, it, you partake together as a group. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and he said, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus called us to do this in remembrance of him. So come when you're ready and taste and touch the good news of forgiveness of sins.